You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Thanks for joining us for February 10th, Saturday, reading of the Arapahoe County News. My name is Tim Elliott. Today I'll be reading the following main articles. Aurora OKs $1.5 million toward $25 million to $35 million replacement of the city's crowded animal shelter by Max Levy, Sentinel, Colorado staff writer. Judge replaces lawyer for ex-social worker who called in fake child abuse tip against Aurora lawmaker. Also written by Max Levy, Sentinel, Colorado staff writer. Honoring Kathy Noon's Legacy by Taylor Shaw. Dems launch second attempt to allow more ADUs by Brian Eason and Jesse Paul. Man found dead outside of Arapahoe County Courthouse was a recently released inmate by Taylor Shaw. Town Hall Art Center in Littleton says it is strong after more than four decades by Nina Joss. And I'll also read various stories and articles. Aurora OKs $1.5 million towards $25 million to $35 million replacement of the city's crowded animal shelter. Aurora's only animal shelter has been pushed to capacity for years, with more dogs and cats jockeying for spots in the facility's kennels than available spaces. That could change under a proposal to double or at least increase the space available to house the city's lost, uh, surrendered, and impounded pets, which Aurora City Council pledged $1.5 million in federal COVID-19 relief funds to explore Saturday. We have one animal shelter in our entire city of 400,000 people, Council Member Francois Bergen said. I just think it's a good investment. We don't really have any other alternatives. The funds will be used along with general impact fees and capital project funds to design and create a financial plan for an all-new facility. Funding for construction could come from certificates of participation with a total face construction cost of between $25 million and $35 million, Deputy City Manager Laura Perry said Saturday. Certificates of participation are a long-term financing mechanism that cities use in a way similar to municipal bonds. Unlike bonds, certificates of participation are considered a lease purchase agreement rather than long-term debt, meaning cities don't need to get the permission of voters before issuing them. Council member Steve Sundberg questioned whether a warehouse could be repurposed or built for the city's needs which city manager Jason Batchelor said the city will investigate once the details of the new facility are determined. City staffers estimated Saturday that paying for a construction using certificates of participation would cost between $1.5 million and $1.8 million annually for 30 years in debt service and interest. More details about the project will be presented to the council at a future meeting. Besides being a safe space for wayward animals to wait for adoption or transfer to one of the rescues that partners with the shelter, the Aurora Animal Shelter offers vaccinations as well as end-of-life services such as euthanation and cremation for pet owners. The shelter is currently a so-called no-kill facility. Built in 1983 when the city's population was less than half its current size, the shelter has pleaded publicly for members of the public to adopt animals 
and find other places to hand over pets due to crowded conditions. The situation isn't as dire as city staffers described Saturday. While Aurora's Director of Housing and Community Services, Jessica Prosser, said the shelter was operating under a waiver from the state's Pet Animal Care and Facilities Act program that the state could revoke at its discretion. A PACFA representative later said no such waiver exists and that the shelter is in compliance with state regulations. City spokesman Michael Brannon wrote in an email that Prosser misspoke when she referenced a waiver but said the building is at risk of falling out of compliance as it ages. Bachelor said Saturday that, absent a new facility, PACFA is likely going to not allow us to continue out of our existing shelter, certainly not in the long term. Some council members said they were uncomfortable with the price tag for issuing certificates of participation, which could cost the city up to $54 million, including interest payments over the life of the deal. Between that and our purchase of Crown Plaza, we're spending nearly $100 million for people experiencing homelessness and animals experiencing homelessness, council member Curtis Gardner said. I have a lot of issues with this. However, the majority of the council voiced no objections and said they appreciated the need for a new shelter and stressed how the shelter serves a purpose beyond housing lost pets. Councilmember Danielle Jurinsky described an incident that took place during a ride-along with an animal services officer, during which she said she and the officer responded to a call about dead geese in the road. She said the geese were ultimately taken to the shelter to be cremated. I had to cremate some geese, Jurinsky said. So, I mean, this is what is going on at the animal shelter. This isn't just some big homeless shelter for dogs. This is a part of city government. Judge replaces lawyer for ex-social worker who called in fake child abuse tip against Aurora lawmaker. Centennial. The attorney representing Robin Nicita missed another hearing due to illness Friday, prompting a judge to remove him from the case and postpone Nicita's sentencing for trying to frame an Aurora City Council member for child abuse to April. Three weeks after attorney Michael Root called in to Nicaea's original sentencing hearing and said he couldn't attend because of a really bad issue with some health stuff, Judge Eric Eliff told a courtroom packed with council member Je Danielle Jurinsky's supporters that Root had once again fallen extremely ill. Eliff threatened to clear the courtroom when some of Danielle Jurinsky's supporters chuckled and made sarcastic comments at this announcement. Since defendants are generally entitled to have their attorney present during sentencing, Eliff said his hands are absolutely tied and that he had no choice but to once again postpone Nasita's sentencing. I know it pains all of you, and it pains me, Eliff said. I have every sympathy for the victims in this case for Miss Nasita's family members, for everybody else who is here in the courtroom and is virtually this morning for the sentencing, but we can't go forward. Root could not be reached by phone or through a contact page on his website following the February 9th hearing. In November, an Arapahoe County jury found Nasita guilty of attempting to influence a public servant, a fourth-degree felony, and making a false report of child abuse a third-degree misdemeanor. Investigators say Nicita called a child abuse hotline 
to accuse Danielle Jarinski of sexually molesting her own son in January 2022, after Jarinski went on, went on a talk radio show to criticize then-Aurora Police Chief Vanessa Wilson, who was Nasita's girlfriend at the time. Nasita faces up to six years in prison and $500,000 in fines for the felony charge and six months' imprisonment and $750 in fines for the misdemeanor. Friday's sentencing was scheduled to start at 9 a.m. As the start time came and went with no signs of Nasita, Danielle Jarinski paced anxiously through the public gallery, at times huddling with her father and other supporters. I'm having a F asterisk 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 G nervous breakdown, and you can quote me on that, she said. She later told reporters that she has lost sleep for the past year and a half at the thought of Nisita dropping off the radar of law enforcement and becoming a fugitive. At 9.10 a.m., Nisita walked into the courtroom without her attorney and sat down at the defendant's table. The hearing itself didn't begin until 9.40 a.m., at which time Elif announced the postponement. While the delay means Danielle Jarinski and Nasita won't learn Nasita's fate until April 12th, Elif invited those present to address the court on behalf of the two on Friday. Danielle Jarinski, her father, and Nasita's former boss took Elif up on his offer, asking him not to show leniency to Nasita. Michelle Dossie, the Child and Adult Protection Services Division Manager for Arapahoe County's Department of Human Services, where Nisita worked as a caseworker at the time of the fake tip, said Nisita's actions had damaged the reputation of so social workers across the state, endangering the lives of children who are genuinely at risk of abuse. If one person in our community has doubts about our children, our child welfare system because of Miss Nisita and hesitates or does not call, a child could really be needlessly in needlessly injured or killed, Dossie said. We believe the punishment should fit the heinous nature of her crimes, and we respectfully request that she be punished to the full extent of the law. Jerry Jarinski told Elif how he felt helpless as his daughter was investigated and threatened with the loss of custody over her, his grandson. He stressed that Nasita acted deliberately and not spontaneously out of anger when she made the hotline call. During the November trial, investigators presented digital forensic evidence downloaded from Nasita's county-issued laptop and cell phone that indicated Nasita looked up information about Janielle Jarinski and the child abuse hotline's policies for retaining caller information shortly before the call was placed. Every lie and every evil criminal action committed by this defendant against Danielle and our family was planned. Not random, spur-of-the-moment decisions, but planned and researched, Jerry Jarinski said. She hoped it would succeed in removing a son from his home and destroying a family. Danielle Jarinski wept openly during her father's testimony and during her own comments to Elif, saying Nasita's actions went beyond intimidation. Those allegations were made with the intent of taking my son from me. What that means, Your Honor, is that those allegations were made with the intent of taking my life from me, Danielle Jarinsky said. She also described the ordeal as God's way of positioning her as a voice for the voiceless, 
and holding Nasita accountable for misconduct that was likely to have taken place before. I was chosen for encountering a terror that was Robin Nasita, Danielle Jurinsky said. Robin, may God have mercy on your soul. Judge Elif, please, may you have none. After the hearing, she told reporters that the ongoing delays in the case were nerve-wracking and that she continues to fear Nasita will try to harm members of her family. Nasita's trial on charges that she tried to dupe the court into believing that she was suffering from brain cancer to avoid criminal penalties is scheduled to begin April 29th. Some of Jarensky's supporters wore matching t-shirts on Friday that read, All brains are not made the same. Team Jurinsky, which hearing attendee Melissa Ryan described as a tongue-in-cheek allusion to Nasita's brain cancer claims. A status hearing in the original case that would include the attorney appointed to replace Root was also set for March 1st. New Aurora City Manager says his tenure at City Hall is about mapping out the future. By Max Levy, Sentinel Colorado staff writer. Having finally shed his deputy and interim titles, Aurora City Manager Jason Batchelor said Wednesday that he's focused on filling job openings and planning for Aurora's future with the help of city lawmakers and employees. There's always things that, as an organization, we can improve on, Batchelor said February 7th. I'm just trying to continue the good work that we do day in and day out. Aurora City Manager oversees the day-to-day operations of the city as well as the hiring and firing of most city employees. They are also responsible for making sure the policy decisions of Aurora City Council are carried out by the rest of the city. Wednesday marked 10 months to the day since Batchelor took over as the city's top administrator, first on an interim basis, following Jim Twombly's retirement in April and lately as a permanent appointee after Aurora City Council picked him for the job in November and watched him get sworn in three weeks later. As city manager, he'll earn $330,000 per year. Bachelor, 49, graduated from the United States Military Academy in West Point in 1996. After a five-year stint in the Army, he received master's degrees in engineering and public affairs from the University of Texas at Austin. I didn't quite know what I wanted to do when I grew up, Bachelor said. And then, early on in my career, I learned about the city management profession, and I was like, I like this. This is really what I want to do. I like the ability to directly serve my community and solve problems every day. Bachelor interned for the city of Austin and later went to work full-time in the city's budget office. Describing Texas summers as long, hot, and miserable, Bachelor said he was grateful when an opportunity arose to serve as a budget officer in Aurora. Since he and his wife Peggy moved to Aurora 15 years ago, Bachelor has worked his way up, being promoted to finance manager and then to deputy city manager. In the later role, he helped draft the consent decree between Aurora's public safety agencies and the Colorado Attorney General's office, and served once before as interim city manager when Skip No stepped down in 2017. Whether it was Ron Miller or Skip No or, or Jim Twombly, they've all been really good city management professionals for me to model myself after, 
Botchler said about the city's past city managers, I really try to have a relationship with not only employees, but also elected officials and really understand them so we can have good communication in terms of what it is they're trying to accomplish and what their concerns are and what we can do. He described an ongoing strategic planning effort as one of his priorities. During a workshop Saturday, city staffers and council members shared ideas for streamlining city government and promoting economic development, community engagement, public health, and safety. Batchelor said his office plans to bring back proposals for multi-year projects, realizing those ideas back to the council in the spring. Some of the projects Batchelor said he was most proud of from his time in Aurora include helping with the development of the Stanley Marketplace and negotiating contracts with Aurora's police and firefighter unions. Batchelor's new job will require him to balance carrying out the will of the majority of the council and maintaining relationships with individual council members, who have been known to publicly clash over policies and personal disagreements. He said striking a balance involves getting to know the perspective and interests of each council member while setting clear expectations for how he can and can't help individual lawmakers accomplish their policy goals. I try and be clear with him that while they may have individual policy agendas, it's my job to get the information that they need to convince their colleagues. It's not my job to convince their colleagues. That's their job, he said. I think that's going well with the council. It's something that requires constant attention. Just like with any relationship, you want to make sure that you're not taking it for granted. Under the form of government described by the city's charter, the city manager also serves as a buffer between city employees and the political interests of individual council members. The charter allows the council to hire and fire a few top officials such as the city manager, city attorney, and municipal judge. However, council members are forbidden from meddling in the appointment and replacement of the majority of employees, and they can only give orders to those employees through the city manager. That means a council member who wanted someone hired or fired for political reasons would have to go through the city manager whose refusal to go along could lead to consequences for their own job. Aurora's current council members haven't withheld their candid opinions about officials serving under the city manager, criticizing and sometimes openly insulting leaders of city departments. In 2022, council member Danielle Jurinsky referred to then-police chief Vanessa Wilson as trash, on a talk radio show due to Wilson's handling of police reform. And Mayor Mike Kaufman and other council conservatives lamented the failure of leadership in the department after a city consultant raised concerns about a record-keeping backlog. Wilson was fired not long after these and other comments. She and the city dispute what led up to her firing, with Wilson saying that some council members pressured then-city manager Jim Twombly into firing her because of her efforts to hold cops accountable for misconduct. The city has said Wilson's firing was apolitical and that she neglected to manage the operations of the police department and engage officers. When asked how he would respond if he faced pressure to replace an employee for reasons unrelated to their job performance, 
Batchelor said he would try to understand any council member's concerns about an employee, but that he wouldn't abdicate his duty to fairly manage the city's workforce. Echoing a comment made weeks earlier by Art Acevedo, who resigned as, as the city's police chief in January, Batchelor said he is here to do the job, not keep my job. Ultimately, that's my decision, and I'll hand that, and the conciliary could hold me responsible for the performance of the organization, he said. On the topic of Acevedo's departure, Batchelor said the city is still determining how it wants to proceed with, fun with finding someone willing and qualified to serve as chief on more than an interim basis. The interim chief title has since passed to Heather Morris, a retired Texas police officer who Acevedo joined, invited to join the Aurora Police Department as his second-in-command last year. Batchelor praised Morris on Wednesday, saying her appointment had promoted stability during the leadership change and that she has done a good job so far of reaching out to officers. It's given me the ability to kind of step back and take some time to think through what's next, Batchelor said. We'll probably, over the coming weeks, try to figure out what's next in terms of filling that position on a permanent basis. We're just not there yet. Batchelor also said Acevedo put the city back on track to meeting the goals of the consent decree, which requires the Aurora Police Department and Aurora Fire Rescue to enact dozens of operational changes meant to crack down on racial bias and the use of excessive force by police officers as well as the improper use of sedatives by paramedics. In 2023, the department implemented many of the reforms in the decree, including by rewriting policies on physical force and constitutional rights, retraining officers on those policies, and changing how uses of force are reviewed after the fact. ADP also struggled to produce data quantifying uses of force and the demographics of people contacted by police, which the firm tasked with monitoring the city's compliance with the decree described as extremely concerning and missed a deadline for anti-bias training. Batchelor acknowledged that the city made assumptions that have since turned out to be false about the amount of time that it would take to meet some of the goals in the decree. In some cases, such as the department's data woes, Batchelor said the delays were due to technological challenges. Other times, like when the department decided to tailor an anti-bias training for Aurora officers, Batchelor said the city and department accepted that it would take more time than initially planned to meaningfully comply with the decree. It's the old adage, right? You don't know what you don't know, he said. It's not for lack of effort. It's not for lack of trying. It's not for lack of any of those things. It's that we want to get it right. Batchelor said he is proud of how close the department is to rolling out an online portal that will allow the public to view current enforcement data. He said the portal would become active in the coming weeks. He also anticipated the department will finish implementing all of the reforms included in the decree in the next few weeks at which point the second phase of the decree will commence, with a monitoring firm following the department's compliance with the changes for the next three years. When asked whether he felt any sense of closure following the mixed prosecutions last year, 
of the first responders involved in the homicide of Elijah McClain, which spurred the creation of the decree, Batchelor said he viewed the incident as something the city should find lessons in rather than trying to move past. It is something that, as an organization, is now part of us, he said. It's something that I think we have to be aware of and continue to learn from. As for the most pressing issues facing the city's administration, Batchelor mentioned the struggles the city of Aurora and businesses face hiring and holding onto qualified employees. He highlighted the ongoing cooperation between the city's Human Resources Department and APD, which he said has contributed to the largest police academy cohort seen by the department in years. But he said he wants to figure out what else the city can do to hire and retain employees. In response to the question of whether he views advocacy on behalf of city staffers to the council as part of his job, Batchelor said the role includes honestly explaining the challenges faced by the organization of the city, as well as maintaining high standards among the city's 3,000-plus employees. It's also about holding people accountable. That's part of what we do as leaders, is make sure that we're getting performance from the entire organization, he said. Our job as a city is to make sure that the services we're providing to our residents and our businesses are top-notch. And I want folks to know that they're very fortunate to have a high-performing organization where there's thousands of, of employees who come to work every day to make their quality of life better. Honoring Kathy Noon's Legacy, former Centennial Mayor forged many paths. A ballroom in the Embassy Suites Hotel was not large enough to hold the overflowing crowd that gathered to celebrate the life of Kathy Noon. A former Centennial Mayor who died in December after facing pancreatic cancer for more than five years. Amid tears and hugs, family, friends, and leaders reflected on Noon's legacy as a leader, worker bee, health advocate, and beloved person. Kathy took great pride in representing her family and representing her community, said Centennial Mayor Stephanie Pico who became mayor after Noon's term ended in 2018. She did it with vigor and a gracious smile, and she did it because she loved what she was doing, Pico added. Maureen Schul, the first mayor of Castle Pines and founder of Wings of Hope for Pancreatic Cancer Research, said Noon's life was of exceptional and heartfelt service. Kathy's memory will not be defined by this disease just as her legacy is so much more than the positions that she held, the titles before her name, the awards that she received, and all the accomplishments that she achieved, Shul said. Kathy's legacy will live on through the many years that she impacted through her friendships, her family, her leadership, years of service, and all of those she helped. Despite Noon's leadership in forming the city of Centennial, those who knew her said she never sought the spotlight. She was just the obvious leader we needed in critical times, said Brian Boked, one of the founders of the City of Centennial. Love at First Kiss The love story of Noon and her husband, Jim Noon, could have been a Hallmark movie. Their paths likely crossed several times throughout their lives before they got together, Jim Noon said. The two met when he was about 20 years old and she was 19. It was love at first kiss, he said. After that, we were absolutely inseparable. 
And it wasn't just that we were a couple, we were a unit. He remembers their first date, February 17, 1975. They spent nearly 24 hours together. It was one of those, we both knew it right away, he said. That's the anniversary that we celebrate more than our, our wedding anniversary. They had two children and became grandparents to four kids. Their eldest granddaughter was proud to tell Peeper her grandma was the mayor. We had time to sort of get ready for this day. We knew it was coming, he said, referring to her pancreatic cancer diagnosis, and it didn't help at all. Jim Noon said that when people think of his wife, he hopes they remember all of the lives she touched. She was extraordinary, he said. A worker bee turned city leader. Noon, born in 1956 as Kathy Philbrick, did not dream of becoming a politician. She was initially interested in musical theater, Jim Noon said. If you had asked her when she was in high school, early, early 20s, if she wanted to be mayor, she would have laughed at you, he said. However, when she learned of the effort to establish the city of Centennial after moving to the area in the late 1990s, she got involved. After the city's formation, Noon went on to become the president and founder of the Centennial Council of Neighborhoods, also called CENCON, a sounding board for Centennial's government. Around 2007, she became a key player in the effort to make Centennial a home rule city so it could follow its own charter rather than the state's code. John Brackney, also a founder of Centennial and former Arapahoe County Commissioner, described the charter as the city's constitution, calling it a framework and backbone for how a city should run. A commission was created to establish a charter made up of 10 Republicans, 10 Democrats, and one unaffiliated citizen. But at the first meeting, a person was missing, and the vote on who should lead the commission ended in a tie, Brackney said. The city attorney decided a coin toss would determine the leader, he said. When it landed, Kathy was our leader, Brackney said, holding up a plaque of the coin. And as this memorial plaque says, we all won with this coin toss. When Brackney interviewed Noon on September 2023 20, for a book on the history of Centennial, she referred to herself as a simple worker bee, he said. As a leader, he said Noon was analytical, had empathy, gave grace, and listened to and respected others. For many of us, Kathy was, is, and will remain an ideal, Brackney said. When she became mayor in 2010, she was the only newcomer on the city council, Jim Noon said. After being sworn in, she put a Burger King crown she had painted gold onto her head. That's what broke the tension in the room, Jim, uh, Jim Noon said. Mayor Pico said Noon served with 16 different council members and strive for a, a respectful atmosphere, even when not all council members agreed, advocating for pancreatic cancer research. When Noon's time as a mayor ended in January 2018, Jim Noon said the couple considered selling their company, Centennial Container, and making travel plans. But that all fell apart when, just months later, Noon found out she had a tumor. Following several tests, she was eventually diagnosed with late-stage pancreatic cancer, he said. When it was first diagnosed, it was inoperable, Jim Noon said. 
She was told that she probably had 90 days to live, he said. Following her diagnosis, she began chemotherapy, but it caused a great deal of pain for her, Jim Noon said. She got a radiation treatment that was able to pull the cancer off of her portal vein, enough that she was now el eligible to get surgery, called a Whipple procedure, which she got around September 2018, he said. She did have a couple years that things were good, he said. The only problem is that's when I got diagnosed with prostate cancer. Jim Noon, who was diagnosed in 2020, said his wife was well enough to take care of him as he went through treatments. He is now out of treatment and just watching it now, he said. She was my support system, he said. Noon later went through another round of chemotherapy because she had lung nodules that were growing. But the chemotherapy was a horrible experience for her, so she stopped, he said. Then, in early 2023, Noon participated in a clinical trial that initially worked at shrinking the lung nodules without making her sick, he said. Everything was sort of going great, he said. We even had a party that was titled, Five Years and I'm Still Here. About two weeks after Noon's party, she found out the cancer had grown back, Jim Noon said. She later tried another clinical trial in Boston that did not go well, he said. She never recovered from that, he said. Noon died December 11th, but her impact continues on, including in the advocacy work she did for cancer research. As she faced her cancer, Noon got involved with Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, a national advocacy net organization and a local group, Wings of Hope for Pancreatic Cancer Research. Every dollar that goes to Wings of Hope ends up being spent in the research at CU, he said. Maureen Shul founded Wings of Hope in 2012 after losing her brother and mother to pancreatic cancer, she said. I wanted it 100% focused on research a 100% volunteer organization. No one gets paid, she said in an interview. Every single penny goes to the research at the University of Colorado Cancer Center. The mission is to raise awareness and fund pancreatic cancer research at the CU Cancer Center, which is where Noon got a lot of her medical care. Every year, Wings of Hope hosts events to raise funds and then gives that money in the form of grants to researchers at the CU Cancer Center, who are working on pancreatic cancer research, Shul said. Noon, who was a Wings of Hope board member along with her husband, died just a few days before the board met for the annual research grant award presentations. At that meeting, which Jim Noon attended, Wings of Hope awarded $175,000 to several research projects that showed potential in diagnosing and treating pancreatic cancer earlier and more effectively. Those grant awards were dedicated to noon. We were all very somber, Shul said about the meeting. Jim was sitting next to me and I, it was just hard to speak. I just kind of choked up and said, everything we do here today is in her memory. She's right here with us. This is what she fought for, she added. Dems launched second attempt to allow more ADUs.
Single-family homeowners in the most populous parts of Colorado would be allowed to build accessory dwelling units on their properties under a bill introduced in late January in the legislature aiming to override local zoning rules in areas that currently prohibit them. House Bill 1152 is the first of several marquee bills that Democrats at the Capitol, in partnership with Governor Jared Polis, are expected to introduce this year that would target city and county land use regulations in an effort to tackle Colorado's affordable housing crisis. A similar push last year ended in a political dumpster fire for the governor when he tried to pack an array of changes into one measure that ultimately failed over weeks of animosity between him and local leaders. In 2024, Polis plans to pursue the same policy changes, albeit through bite-sized pieces of legislation, the first of which is the Accessory Dwelling Units Bill introduced Tuesday. Accessory dwelling units, also called ADUs, granny flats or casitas, are secondary residents that are either attached or adjacent to single-family homes. They're often rented out or used for visiting family members and have long been since as a way to boost Colorado's housing stock and drive down the cost of living. Homeowners also rent them out to tourists as short-term vacation rentals. Research by Freddie Mac, the government-sponsored housing corporation, has found that ADUs are far more affordable than apartments and standalone housing units. But local prohibitions have limited their proliferation in all but a handful of places across the country. In Denver, for instance, a residential lot must be a certain size or in a certain area to be zoned for an ADU to be legally built. Getting a variance can be difficult. Bill sponsors told the Colorado Sun they view ADUs as a small piece of solving Colorado's housing crunch, one that, that can appeal to senior citizens and workers alike. People are struggling to live where they work, said Senator Kyle Mulica, Democrat Thornton. This is an opportunity to try to solve that and put more affordable units on the market. Representative Judy Amiable, Democrat Boulder, said that before she joined the legislature, she built a shower and a kitchenette in a room above her garage for her son, who suffers from mental illness and needed a separate living space. The city cracked down on the illegal unit, and her son was left homeless for months, she said, spending the night in shelters and occasionally in a sleeping bag on her porch. That shouldn't be happening, Amiable said. It's about your own personal property rights. The rules in House Bill 1152 would only apply to communities covered by a metropolitan planning organization, including Denver and much of the Front Range, as well as Grand Junction. Cities with fewer than 1,000 people would be exempt, as would unincorporated communities with fewer than 10,000 residents. Mountain resort communities would also be exempt, said House Speaker Julie McCluskey, a nod to concerns that homeowners there will promote them as a short-term vacation rentals rather than provide housing to Coloradans. The measure would also create two new programs to promote the construction of ADUs. One would provide grants to local governments that could be used to waive permitting fees for ADUs. 
Another would provide low-interest financing to low- to moderate-income homeowners who want to build accessory units on their properties. To qualify, homeowners would have to rent their units at an affordable rate. Local governments are skeptical of the measure, a sign that months of negotiations leading up to the session have not resulted in broad support for Polis housing plans. Kevin Bomber, who leads the Colorado Municipal League, which represents cities and towns across Colorado, called the bill a good start. But he worries that it undermines local decision-making. The state should absolutely be in the business of incentives, he told The Sun. But this legislation, as introduced, also crosses a well-established line of unconstitutional preemption of home rule land use authority. Bomber said that applies to a number of housing bills introduced at the Capitol this year. Amiable acknowledged the complaint, but she suggested local officials aren't united on the matter. I've gotten two kinds of feedback. One is, we don't want the state telling us what to do, Amiable said. The other feedback is, please get this done because we know our community members want it. But we have these loud, very vocal groups that are shutting down any progress. The Democratic majority at the Capitol is also expected to bring legislation that would require cities to allow denser residential zoning around bus and train stops, as well as a measure that would limit residential parking requirements. Transit-oriented and connected communities can create a better future for our state and drive our prosperity and our enjoyment with less traffic, more housing people can actually afford, better air quality. Polis said in his State of the State address this month. The legislature is already debating a few other major housing measures. One is House Bill 1007, which would prohibit local governments from limiting the number of unrelated people who can live together, except for health and safety reasons, like fire code and water quality regulations. The legislation passed out of the House Transportation, Housing, and Local Government Committee by an 8-3 to party-line vote in late January. It now heads to the full House for, for more debate. Senate Bill 2, which passed unanimously uh, recently out of the Senate Local Government and Housing Committee, would give local governments more leeway to create property tax rebate programs amid a boost, boosting affordable house at boosting affordable housing. Awaiting its first hearing is House Bill 1098, which would prohibit landlords from evicting tenants before their lease is up unless they have legal cause to do so, such as situations when a property is unlawfully occupied, rent goes unpaid, or a tenant otherwise violates their lease. Landlords could still evict a tenant if they plan to take the home off the rental market. A similar measure failed last year. The measure has some high-profile support. McCluskey, the House Majority Leader, Monica Duran, a Wheat Ridge Democrat who is a lead sponsor of the bill. Nevertheless, Senate President Steve Feinberg, a Boulder Democrat, cast doubt Tuesday on whether House Bill 1098 would make it across the finish line in 2024. Given doubts about the measure in his chamber and how Polis has been a vocal skeptic of the idea. The governor worries it would actually drive up housing costs. I don't know that the political landscape has changed since last year, he told reporters. I don't think Jared Polis has changed since last year. I think the question is, 
Can people come together and figure out the path forward on these various bills that pleases the folks who are advocating the bills and also is done in a way that has 1833 and 1? It takes 18 votes for a bill to pass the Senate and 33 votes for a measure to pass the House. The governor then must approve any bill before it becomes law, hence the 1. I think it'll be a tight vote one way or the other. Win or lose by a vote or two, Feinberg said. The legislative session runs through May 8th. Man found dead outside of Arapahoe County Courthouse was a recently released inmate. Amid an ongoing investigation into the death of a man whose body was found outside a courthouse in Centennial, the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Office said the man has recently been an inmate. Officials have not yet named the man. His body was found February 9th outside the Arapahoe County Justice Center. He was an inmate who had been released the day before, said Deputy John Bartman, a public information officer, on February 9th. He was an inmate who had been released the day before, said Deputy John Bartman, a public information officer, on February 9th. He was in custody on a warrant out of another jurisdiction. Another agency had arrested him, not the sheriff's office, and he had been released on a PR, personal recognizance, bond midday yesterday. His body was reported by a person going into the courthouse around 8 a.m. on February 9th, Bartman said. The man was found at the side of the courthouse near an alcove by emergency stairs. And that little alcove is very, it's kind of secluded back there because there's a bunch of landscaping and trees, Bartman said. Bartman estimated that the man was in his late 20s or early 30s. Foul play is not currently suspected, but the investigation is ongoing, he said. Investigators are sifting through video from the Justice Center complex to track his movements once he was released, he said. Town Hall Art Center in Littleton says it is strong after more than four decades. About a hundred people recently gathered in a large banquet room to celebrate theater in Littleton. They ate, drank, laughed, and even got a sneak peek at some upcoming shows. It was the Town Hall Art Center Donor Appreciation Dinner, an annual event that recognizes and thanks people who have made significant contributions to the center's finances and mission. We invite them, literally, just to tell everybody, thank you for being part of the Town Hall family, said Chief Operating Officer Robert Michael Sanders. The Town Hall Art Center is a live theater and nonprofit organization located on Main Street. The historic building, which is the city's former town hall, hosts a range of theatrical events, concerts, fine art exhibits, and educational programs. Lynn Lear Buck, the organization's president, highlighted the theater's last season, which included comedies and dramas. Disney's Newsies the Musical brought audiences to the newsboy strike of 1899. I love you, you're perfect, now change, dove into love, marriage, and family, and Memphis explored race, romance, and musical dreams. Now in its 41st season, Sanders said the theater's box office is strong. The opening show, All Shook Up, had an almost sold-out run. During a limited-run show, last sessions, the writer and composer flew out from New York and gave high praise for the performance, Sanders said.
and Matilda, which showed during the holidays, was completely sold out, he added. The center is now showing Urinetown, a three-time Tony award-winning satirical musical that lambasts capitalism, environmental collapse, municipal politics, and doomed star-crossed love, according to the theater's website. Saunders said about half of the theater's revenue comes from ticket sales, and the rest of it comes from grants, sponsors, and donations. For that reason, the center is grateful to its donors for making their work possible. Theater matters, Saunders said. It's an event. It's a place where everybody can go to experience something together as a group, have something to talk about, or have differences of opinion, or just check out and have a good laugh for a little while. It's a communal event when you put 250 people together in your space to share a story. Contending with grocery store sales, economy, shift in drinking, a Littleton wine shop to close. After about 18 years on Littleton's Main Street, a small wine and liquor store is closing. Neighborhood Wine and Spirits, formerly Lido Wine Merchants, offered a selection of liquors, beers, and artisan wines. The shop is saying goodbye in response to the economic challenges it faced last year, owner Jordan Bladis said. This decision was not made lightly, but it has become clear that moving forward is no longer sustainable for us, he wrote in an email announcement to his customers. Blades bought the store from its previous owners in 2020. In the past year, he said his shop was hit by a number of factors, including voters' decision in 2022 to allow grocery stores to sell wine. The ballot measure, which went into effect in 2023, narrowly passed with just over 50% of Colorado voters in favor of allowing grocery and convenience stores to sell wine. Everybody in my industry just, you know, they blame the grocery stores, he said. But it was bigger than that, because a lot of people are having a tough time. He also blamed the economy in general for the closure. Blade said the loss of his small store and other wine and liquor shops like his may have a farther reaching impact than people realize. Small stores like mine, we work with small distributors who support small boutique wineries, he said. When all of these little stores go under, then those little distributors are going to be behind them and then consumers are not going to have access to the small production boutique wineries that they used to have access to. Blaze worked with 18 different distributors, and he said he worries about the challenges the small wine and liquor companies may face as stores like his clothes. The end of COVID-19 pandemic also changed people's drinking habits, which reduced demand on businesses that sell alcohol, he said. A lot of people during COVID overdid it with the drinking, he said. Last year, a lot of people were cutting back on their alcohol consumption. Blades himself has changed his relationship with alcohol in recent years, as he celebrates over two years of sobriety. As he moves forward to his next professional steps, he hopes to find a way to help people on a similar journey. I've just experienced a lot of personal growth in the last two and a half years and learned a lot about myself, he said. Part of that was various disorders that I have that I was never diagnosed with that can lead to substance abuse problems. 
Blades hopes to use his public speaking skills to help people. I really want to try to find a way to speak to people who may be suffering from substance abuse and not know that they may also have underlying disorders that contribute to that, he said. If I can help other people who might be struggling, I would really like an opportunity to do that. In addition to the wine and liquor shop, Blades is a part owner of Littleton Learning Lab, an interdisciplinary studio where he teaches wine classes. He is looking forward to growing this business and teaching people about what they drink, even as he says goodbye to his shop. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you for being part of our story, he wrote in his email he wrote in his email to his customers. You have not just been customers, you have been friends and an integral part of our wine-loving family. We hope the memories and experiences shared within our walls will linger fondly with you as they will with us. Neighborhood Wine and Spirits will remain open on weekends through the end of February. District Attorney John Kellner will not seek re-election in 2024 by McKenna Harford. John Kellner, a Republican, has served as the lead prosecutor for the 18th Judicial District since his election in 2021. Kellner announced he will not to run for another term in the district that includes Douglas, Elbert, Arapahoe, and Lincoln counties. His term ends in January 2025. He cited the impending split of the 18th Judicial District into two districts. He told Colorado community, community Media on Monday that he is unsure what his next steps will be. I've thought a lot about it, he said. I've made my life about public service, and this seems like a real natural inflection point with the breakup of the districts. Kellner has spent the past few years helping the district prepare for the split, which is slated for 2025. It will create a new 23rd Judicial District, which will include Douglas, Elbert, and Lincoln counties. The 18th will be limited to Arapahoe County. There's no question the electoral math for somebody who's a Republican is very challenging for Arapahoe County, Kellner said. Kellner is not eligible to run to become district attorney in the 23rd Judicial District because he doesn't reside within its boundaries. Kellner added that he feels it's important to remain focused on completing the process of splitting the district instead of focusing on a campaign. I'm excited to see us get through the rest of the year and see us hand off two very excellent district attorney's offices to the new DAs, he said. Kellner started working in the 18th Judicial District in 2013, holding positions including prosecutor, senior deputy district attorney, and chief deputy district attorney. He said he is proud of his work as a prosecutor, particularly the 2022 conviction of serial murderer Alex Ewing, also known as the Hammer Killer, following a series of rapes and murders back in the 1980s. Being part of the investigation of that for several years and then ultimately trying him, personally convicting him, and seeing him sentenced to prison for the rest of his life was very rewarding, he said. Kellner repeatedly praised his colleagues in the district attorney's office for their dedication and hard work. 
He encouraged the next district attorney to build on the office's team mentality. Another piece of advice Kellner offered his successors is to maintain the diversion program that helps low-level offenders avoid charges and aims to reduce recidivism. He also said specialized teams like the Organized Crime Unit are important to the district. In 2022, Kellner campaigned to become Colorado's Attorney General, but lost to Phil Weiser, a Democrat. As of Monday, the Colorado Secretary of State's office showed Democrat Amy Padden had filed paperwork to run to become the next district attorney in the 18th Judicial District. Two Republicans, George Brockler and Dagna Van Der Jagd, are running in the 23rd Judicial District. Thanks again for joining us for the Arapahoe County News. My name is Tim Elliott. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.